1969, one of the leading advocates of the self-esteem movement, a psychologist whose name was Nathaniel Brandon, wrote a paper entitled The Psychology of Self-Esteem, in which he suggested that feelings, he said this, feelings of, quote, I'm quoting him here, feelings of self-esteem were the key to success in life. He went on to say this. Let me read this to you. He says, I cannot think of a single psychological problem from anxiety and depression to fear of intimacy or of success to spousal battery or child molestation that is not traced back to the problem of low self-esteem, end quote. Brandon's work, along with others, sparked a revolution in education and parenting in which well-intentioned school administrators and well-intentioned parents sought to find ways to confer uh, high self-esteem upon children. And that has permeated education and parenting efforts all the way to today. But guess what? To the shock and the horror of the self-esteem movement's boosters, soaring self-esteem has done nothing to stem crime, addiction, and the other ills uh, of society that its boosters claimed that it would. Writing recently in the Wall Street Journal on this subject, uh, she was reviewing the 15,000 studies that the self-esteem movement has generated. A reviewer by the, K, by the name of Kay Heimowitz concludes this. She says this, And what do these studies show? She says that, that high self-esteem doesn't improve grades, reduce antisocial behavior, deter alcohol drinking, or do much of anything good for kids, end quote. University of Pennsylvania psychology professor Martin Seligman echoes this, and he says this. He says, something striking has happened to the self-esteem of American children during the era, the era of raising our children to feel good. And he says this, they have never been more depressed, end quote. Wow. Does that uh, seem as counterintuitive to you uh, as it does to me? Uh, how can that be? Why, why hasn't the self-esteem movement cured many of the ills of society in the manner that its, that its proponents thought that it would? Why has that not happened? Well, I know it's hard for modern people to believe because we tend to absolutize the moment in which the cultural moment in which we live so it's hard for us to believe, but the answer to that question about why the self-esteem movement hasn't cured the ills of society is found in the passage that we're going to look at this morning as we continue where we left off a couple of weeks ago in the series on the Gospel of Mark. So if you have a Bible, turn with me in your Bible to Mark chapter 7, whether it's uh, you know, like a digital version, whether you've got it on an app, whatever, turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 7. If you've got a hard copy, turn to Mark chapter 7. And I just want to take a moment, I want to thank Sean Little for speaking for the last couple of weeks. I think he did a fantastic job. Would you show Mark, uh, would you show Sean your appreciation? I think he did a great job. Just to remind you, uh, as I said a moment ago, we're nearing the end of a series on the first half of the book of Mark that covers three and a half years in the life of Jesus. We've been trying in this series to get back to the original Jesus. We want to figure out who he is, what he said, what he did. And Mark's been a really good place for us to do that because Mark was the earliest written gospel. It was written during the life uh, of the very generation who had actually witnessed Jesus' life and death and resurrection. 
Now, uh, again, for those of you who are regulars here, you know that the way that I normally do this is that I, uh, I read the passage and then I make some points that are kind of scattered throughout my talk. I'm going to do it a little differently today. Uh, we're going to read the passage, but then I want to make sure that we understand what's happening in the narrative, and then I'll make some points uh, near the end. So when I start making points, you can know, hey, yay, we're almost done. So that's how this is going to work this morning, okay? Let's start reading at verse 24. Here we go. Jesus left that place. Okay, that place is where he was talking to the Pharisees. We left here, left off a couple of weeks ago. He'd been talking to the Pharisees about uncleanness, okay? So he left that place and he went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house, didn't want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. And then Jesus said this. He said, first let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Wow. Yes, Lord, she replied. But even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And then he told her, Jesus, Jesus told her, for such a reply you may go. The demon has left your daughter. And then verse 30, she went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Okay. You need to know that Tyre, while it is in Israel proper, it is still Gentile territory. And for this passage to make sense, you also need to understand that there are other places in the gospel where Jesus makes it very clear that his time on earth was going to be spent primarily among Jewish people. Now, after his death and resurrection, his disciples were to take the gospel beyond the Jews, you know, to the Gentiles. But uh, the Jewish people were going to be the people to whom Jesus would primarily invest his time. But for some reason, in this passage, Jesus chooses to cross over into Gentile territory. Verse 24 tells us that he wanted to kind of stay under the radar. Maybe he was tired. Uh, Maybe the people who wanted to kill him in Israel were getting closer. We don't know for sure. But whatever his reason, it makes no difference to this Greek Gentile woman. As soon as she hears that he's in town, she makes a beeline straight for him. Now, I want you to put yourself uh, in the... Ladies, I want you to put yourself in this woman's sandals for just a moment. Can you imagine how this woman feels? Her child is demon-possessed. Now understand, this isn't a case of a high temperature. This isn't chickenpox. This isn't strep throat. Uh, This isn't the flu. This isn't even a teenage girl in a really surly mood, which some of you guys with girls have told me looks eerily similar to demon possession. It's not that. (laughs) This is real demon possession. And the text lets us know that this is her, it's her little girl. Can you imagine, ladies, can you imagine moms, how this mom feels? Sick, stomach in knots, hands shaking, on the one hand wanting to cry, on the other hand wanting to scream, frightened, desperate, helpless. And where is the dad? Why isn't he dealing with this? Where is he in the story? Is his head in the sand trying to ignore this whole thing? Or is she a single mom? Is she widowed or divorced? Or maybe she had the child out of wedlock and the dad hightailed it out of town. Whatever the reason, 
She's the one that's dealing with this. There is no doctor that you can take this girl to for this. There is only one person in the world with the power to deal with this, and he just happens to be in town. And by the way, that might be why the demonic activity in this town began to happen in the first place. Because wherever Jesus shows up, all hell tends to break loose. And so this woman boldly walks right into this house. We know from the other Gospels that the disciples are there in this house too with Jesus. Uh, But she muscles her way through them and she falls at Jesus' feet. Why is she so bold? Why is she so bold? Look, if you're you're a mother, you get this, right? Like, like, Like there are heroes and there are cowards and then there are moms. And moms aren't even in the same category because a mom will do whatever it takes for her child who is suffering. Whatever it takes. Right, moms? And you need to understand something else. This woman lives close enough to the Jewish people. I mean, she's a Gentile, but she lives close enough to the Jewish people that she understands their customs. She knows that she has none of the religious moral or cultural credentials necessary to approach a rabbi. One, she's a Gentile. Two, she's a woman. Three, there is no man with her, but she has a daughter, which makes her character suspect. And four, her child is possessed by an evil spirit. And so at every point, she is disqualified according to the religious and respectability standards of the day. But she doesn't care because she's a mom. And so she begs Jesus to heal her daughter. The word beg, for those of you who are uh, grammar aficionados, the word beg in the Greek is a present progressive tense word, verb, which means that she keeps on begging. Like she won't take no for an answer. She begs Jesus to heal her daughter, which is an act of incredible faith in this Jewish rabbi for a gentle, uh, for a Gentile woman. And I don't know if you thought this as you read it through for the first time, but I certainly thought this. On the surface, Jesus' response to her seems, well, it seems frankly both cryptic and cruel. Does it not? Verse 27, first let the children, he says, she's begging him. You know, will you heal my daughter? First, he says, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. How many of you would agree that this feels cryptic and cruel? Raise your hands. And it's okay to say that it feels cruel, right? Because I thought that you know, the rest of you, are you listening or are you lying? Which one? Raise your hand if you think this sounds cryptic or cruel. Yeah, good, okay. I don't know about you, but if I'm the woman in this situation, I'm, I'm looking for a yes or no answer to the question. Will you heal my child? Actually, I want a yes is what I want, right? Instead, Jesus uses this confusing metaphor to answer her. And then there's this thing, like, is he comparing her to a dog? Like, what is that all about? And there, you need to know that there are a couple of interesting things going on here. One 
What Jesus is doing in using this little metaphor is he's reiterating what I mentioned earlier, that his primary mission is to the Jewish people. He wants Israel to see that he is the fulfillment of all of the revelation of Scripture, all the promises, all of the prophecies, the kings, the temple, the worship system, all of those are fulfilled in him. So what Jesus is saying is that there is an, there's a proper order here for how he's going to do things. And he says, I'm not here for the Gentiles, not right now. In this metaphor, the Jewish people are the children. He's saying that anyone's first concern, anyone, you know, she's a mom, so she would understand this. Anyone's first concern is to minister to his or her family. And the Jews have been God's chosen people, his special family. That's that's what the metaphor means, that Jesus' mission is to his people uh, first. But don't you wonder... Why didn't he just say that? Why this cryptic, uh, confusing metaphor? And commentators aren't completely sure about why he does this, frankly. But there may be a clue in this word, dog. Uh, Understand that the Jewish people, because of their status as God's chosen people, many of them had had actually become uh, racial bigots. And they thought of the Gentiles, and that's, by the way, that's most of us in the room. We're most of us, if, you're not a, if, you're not, if, if you don't have Jewish blood in you, you're a Gentile. Okay? They thought of the Gentiles as dogs. In fact, they, they called them that. They called them dogs. They were second-class citizens as far as the Jewish people were concerned. And this woman would have known that. And perhaps she, she might have even wondered if Jesus would treat her with the same racial bigotry that other Jews would have treated her with. But something happens here that you can't see on the surface. The word that's translated dogs here that Jesus uses is a very unusual word choice. When the Jews referred to the Gentiles as dogs, they used a word that meant like a dirty, uh, wild scavenger dog. You know, like an unwanted, homeless, dirty, nuisance kind of dog, right? But Jesus, interestingly, doesn't use that word. He brilliantly chooses a sweeter, uh, more endearing word that would signal to her that he understands the racism that she would normally experience in this situation, and yet still conveys that his priority is the Jewish people, but that that has nothing to do with racial bigotry, okay? So the word that he chooses is a word that means, it means puppies, like cute little puppies, like family pet kind of puppies. You know what I'm talking about, right? And so what he's, what he's saying is, look, there, there is an order here. It, it, it goes Jews first and then Gentiles second. But I want you to understand, ma'am, that that's not about racial bigotry. That's just the way that the plan is. It's going to be Jews first, and then, and then ultimately the gospel is going to go to the Gentiles. You know, my ministry, uh, all that I'm about will ultimately affect your life, but really I came here to minister to the Jews first, and then uh, later on uh, the Gentiles, okay? But, but it's not about racial bigotry. So it's a brilliant way to take the language of, of a racial insult and turn it in to the language of love. But it's what happens next that so delights Jesus, that just sort of blows this whole passage up. 
This desperate mom realizes that there is hope in what Jesus just said. He didn't just kick her out and treat her like a scavenger dog, like many of the Jews would have. She grabs a hold of Jesus' word, puppies, because she realizes what he's saying in this. And she uses that same word, puppies, when she says to him in verse 28, Yes, Lord. She replied, but even the, and the word here is puppies, even the sweet little cute little family pet puppies, even puppies under the table eat the children's crumbs. Now, I know it doesn't seem like it to you, but this is such a remarkable response that Jesus even says as much in verse 29. Because he says, then he told her, for such a reply, you may go, the demon has left your Daughter. A better translation might be, ding, 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 ding. You just hit the jackpot, ma'am. What a great answer. That was an incredible response. That's really, I think, a better translation of what the text was saying. There's no ding, 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 ding in Greek, but I'm just kind of adding that for you. Now, why? What was so incredible about uh, her response? Okay, to answer that, here's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to step away from this narrative for just a moment. And we're going to go back to the self-esteem movement uh, that we were talking about earlier. And this is where I want to make uh, some points that you can write down. So know this, if you're getting tired, we're coming close to the end, all right? Okay, here's the first point. Let me, let me just say this, that you write this down or make a note of it somewhere. Reality will crush an identity built upon self worthiness. Okay. Reality will crush an identity that is built upon self-worthiness. Okay, this is why the self-esteem movement failed to accomplish what its boosters thought it would uh, accomplish. Because what the self-esteem movement tries to do, moms and dads, when you're trying to build great self-esteem into your children, educators, when you're trying to do that uh, in your students, Uh, What it does, what often it does, is that it builds identities that are based upon self-worthiness as the ultimate reference point, okay? But you can't do that. Now, I'm not arguing for low self-esteem, but I'm saying if you build uh, kids' identities on uh, their own worthiness as the ultimate reference point, it will never work. Reality will always catch up with them and crush their identity. Because you've built it upon their self-worthiness as the ultimate reference point. Now, think about this. This makes sense if you just think about this for a moment. If you've been told all of your life that you're great, that you can do anything that you put your mind to, you've been given trophies for just showing up, Uh, you've been told that you're special, that you deserve the best grades, the best treatment in life, the best things in life, there are only two possible psychologically honest outcomes for that. One is self-loathing. Self-loathing. Because what happens when you suddenly hit the cold iron wrecking ball of reality and realize that there are people in the world that are way more talented than you, way more beautiful than you, way smarter than you, wealthier than you, more accomplished, and frankly, more deserving than you. And that you aren't quite as special as your parents and grandparents and third grade teacher uh, told you that you were. What happens? What happens when you meet people who aren't so impressed with your worthiness as a person? 
uh, journalist by the name of uh, Anneli Rufus did quite a bit of study on this, quite a bit of research in this area. And she wrote this. She said, so-called beneficiaries of the self-esteem boom have been brainwashed to believe that they deserve the best grades, the best treatment, the best of everything. Thus, listen to this now, they are very easily offended, angered, disappointed, and crushed by even the faintest criticism. What she's saying is that the self-esteem movement, while well-intentioned, no question, it created very fragile egos that had nothing to hold them together once they encountered reality. Because those egos were built upon the idea that they were self-worthy, self-deserving. But when other people don't agree, those kids are crushed. They begin to hate themselves for not measuring up to their standards, to other standards. They're crushed. You know when this... uh, (laughs) This was, this was never more on display, uh, like in a public setting, than when Simon Cowell was on American Idol. Okay, do you remember this? Like, there would be these people that would come on American Idol that could not sing. Someone close to them needed to say, I love you, but you cannot sing. You're not a good singer. But no one did, probably because they thought, well, that will hurt her self-esteem that will really smash his self-esteem and then they go on and they audition and Simon Cowell says something to them like they should have said before I don't know what you were thinking I don't know what the people around you were telling you but you can't sing and you should stop singing and you know what you know how influenced we are by the self-esteem movement as a culture we thought that Simon Cowell was being mean In reality, he was doing them a favor that someone should have been doing for them a long time ago. I'm going to tell you something. If I ever got it in my mind that I was going to audition to sing someplace, there are people around me who love me enough to say, do not do that. You cannot sing, Dad. That's what they would tell me. (laughs) They, They love me enough to tell me that, right? But see, if you've never been told that, when you, when you finally meet someone that says, I, I just don't think you're that special, frankly. Uh, you don't deserve it more than they do. One psychological outcome of that is just self-loathing. Because suddenly you're being told something different than you ever have heard before. That you're not as worthy as you think you are. And as mommy and daddy And grandma and grandpa thought you were. Now some people don't turn towards self-loathing. Some people go the other way. The other psychologically honest outcome of the self-esteem movement is narcissism. Narcissism. Narcissists have so bought into the message of self-esteem that they believe they are special regardless of what anyone else says. In fact, so much so that they believe anything they want or anything they do is right because why? They are the center of the universe. And you know, here's what's interesting. One long-term study found that college students today are now twice as narcissistic as college students were in 1982. I want you to listen to this. A former jail doctor 
by the name of Theodore Dalrymple. He was writing about a group of young men that he called young thugs. And listen, I want you to listen to what he said. He said, one has only to go into a prison to see the most revoltingly high self-esteem among a group of people who had brought nothing but misery to those around them, largely because they conceived of themselves as so important that they could do no wrong. What's that called? That's called narcissism. But look, I'm going to tell you something. Even the narcissists can't escape reality. Eventually, reality will crush even the narcissistic. Someone somewhere is going to flatten the narcissist. Something is going to flatten them. It might be a policeman. Uh, It might be somebody bigger than them, stronger than them. It might be somebody more wealthy than them. Somebody who's just willing to say no to a narcissist. But eventually reality will crush even the narcissist. The problem is it usually doesn't happen before they have crushed the lives of everyone in their relational world. So here's where the self-esteem movement fails. It builds identities based upon self-worthiness. That's the problem. Okay? Now, I want to I give you the second point. And we'll just say it, let me just say it this way. And then uh, I want to get back into the narrative here for just a moment. Here's the second point. And this one's more hopeful than the first. Only an identity that is built upon Jesus Christ can survive reality. Only an identity that is based upon Jesus Christ, that is built upon Jesus Christ, can survive reality. You know, the people that come along and say, you're not as important as you think you are. Uh, You failed. There's someone better than you. There's someone prettier than you. That's reality, right? Only an identity built upon Jesus Christ can survive that. Now, I'm going to show you why, but let's get back to the woman in this story. Why is Jesus so blown away by her response to him? Well, I want you to just think about it for a moment. What if this woman wouldn't have replied in the way that she did respond? What if when Jesus calls her a puppy and says, sorry, you got to wait in line behind the children of Israel because right now they're more important than you. What if she would have responded like a narcissist? She gets furious at Jesus. How dare you use a racial epithet and tell me that I'm a puppy? How dare you tell me that I'm, in, that I'm second in line to the Jews? I don't have to stand for this. And she storms out in a huff. What, ha- what happens? Well, not only does her daughter not find relief from her suffering, but you probably never would have heard of this woman in this story. Okay? But on the other hand, What if she would have replied with self-loathing? Yes, Lord, you're right. I'm nothing but a dog. I'm I'm lousy. I shouldn't have even asked. And then she crawls away with her tail between her legs like a sad little puppy dog. What would have happened? Well, again, she would have never received the healing that her daughter needed. Nor would she have heard Jesus be so thrilled with her answer. But in fact, the reason that Jesus is so enthralled with her answer is that she responds in a manner that is neither narcissistic nor self-loathing. Unlike the narcissist, she accepts that she is unworthy. She says, yes, I am. I'm unworthy. I'm, I'm not a Jew. I have no right to be here. I have no right to ask. She accepts that. 
I have a question for you. Be honest with yourself. Could you have accepted that? Could your ego have accepted the fact that for all intents and purposes, you were being relegated to a second-class position based upon your race? Could you have handled that? She can't. She accepts that. Okay, but watch this. On the other hand, she isn't crushed by it. She doesn't tuck tail and crawl away like a self-loather would. She respectfully continues to contend with Jesus for her daughter. Could you have done that? Could your ego have taken the hit that this woman took? And could you have kept on? Or would you have tucked your tail in between your legs and kind of slowly crawled away? Why could she take that hit and keep going? Why wasn't she either offended like a narcissist or crushed like a self-loather? Listen to this. Here's the answer. It's because her appeal to Jesus wasn't based upon her self-worthiness at all. Her appeal was based upon Jesus' worthiness. This is what Jesus was so thrilled about. She's saying in this, she's saying, Lord, I'm not coming to you on the basis of my worthiness. I'm coming on the basis of your worthiness. Like, I'm not saying to you, give me what I deserve on the basis of my worthiness like a narcissist would. I'm saying, give me what I don't deserve on the basis of your goodness. But she's also saying, I'm not going to insult you by ignoring what your, mercy, uh, what your mercy deserves, like a self-loather would. I want it now. Give this to me. Give me this request now. Give me what I don't deserve. And Jesus does. He gives her what amounts to a standing ovation because she gets what he's been trying to teach and, and, and he casts the demon out of her daughter. In short, this Greek Gentile woman gets the basics of the gospel. On the one hand, she understands her worthiness and isn't offended by it. Now listen to this. God says to each and every one of us, and those of you who tend toward narcissism in the room, just get ready for this because I'm going to hit you with some reality. God says to each and every one of us, look, you are more wicked than you ever dared believe. And so you are unworthy of me. Now look, you can be offended by that. But that's reality. You know what? You could be offended. You could go stand in the middle of the street and be offended that someone tells you that a car is stronger than you and it will crush you if you let it hit you. You can be offended by that all you want. But if you stand in the street, you're going to get run over. You're going to get crushed. Because it's reality. And in the same way, this is reality. You are more wicked than you ever dared believe. And so you're unworthy of God. Now on the other hand, God says, and some of you self-loathers need to hear this, you don't have to be crushed by that reality because you are also loved more than you ever dared imagine. Now how can that be? How can you be so loved when you're so wicked and so unworthy? Here's the answer. The cross of Jesus Christ. On the cross, do you know what you're seeing when Jesus hangs on that cross? What you're seeing is the ultimate child of God became a despised, dirty, homeless dog. So that you and I could become sons and daughters at the table. 
He took our sins and was punished for our sins so that we could become more than just cute little puppy pets, but we could become sons and daughters of God. That's what you see on the cross. And I'm going to just close with this, that this has at least three profound implications that I hope you will spend some time dwelling on uh, today and this week. The first is, uh, and by the way, for those of you who are in City Life groups, this would be a great thing for you to talk over and to just let it sink more deeply into you. Here's the first implication. For those of you who tend to be on the narcissistic side of the scale, here's what I want you to hear. That the cross of Christ means that you cannot stand before God on your dignity, on your rights, on your moral record, on your worth. Hear that. You cannot ask God for anything on the basis of your self-worthiness. God owes you nothing. And if you think he does, you are out of touch with reality, and reality will crush you. Here's the second implication. For those of you who tend toward the self-loathing side of the scale, you need to hear me on this. It is just as much a rejection of the love of God to refuse to seek him, to refuse to come after his mercy, to refuse to accept it, to, be, to refuse to be content with Christ's death on the cross because of your unworthiness, as it is to say, I'm too good for it. Now, hear me. That, that too is a rejection of God. When you say with that whiny, mousy voice in your head that comes from too much talk about self-esteem, when you say, I'm unworthy, I'm too bad, I'm a sinner, God couldn't love me. You need to understand that is as much of an insult to the cross of Christ as it is to say, I don't need the cross of Christ because I'm self-worthy. Understand that. That's an insult to the cross of Christ. Third, final implication. An identity built on Jesus, as opposed to your worthiness, can withstand great success, great failure, Rejection or acceptance, unfaithful husbands and unfaithful wives, terrible bosses, mean-spirited co-workers, and everything else that reality has to throw your way. Why? Because in the gospel, Jesus says, you matter to me regardless of your performance, regardless of what anyone else in the world says about you. I hung on a cross just to pay for you, for my father. You matter. We have this saying around here, and it goes like this. Good psychology is good theology made personal. An identity built on Jesus Christ can withstand whatever life throws at you because it is based upon him and him alone. Now, that's good theology, and that makes for good psychology as well. How do you get such a rock-solid identity? First, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you've never come to a place where you have placed your belief in what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you personally, the first thing that you have to do to get this rock-solid identity that can handle whatever life throws at you is you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, for those of you who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, 
I know what you're thinking. You're thinking to yourself, you know, I've tried this. This doesn't really work. I mean, I still go through this narcissism, self-loathing thing. I'm up and down all the time. This doesn't work. Here's the thing you have to understand. Your mind has been programmed with the self-esteem stuff for so long. You have to reprogram it. And to reprogram it means this, that you have to preach the gospel to yourself over and over and over again. Those of you who've been Christians for many, many years, you need to understand this. You have to preach the gospel to yourself over and over again. Preach it to yourself in the morning when you wake up. Preach it to yourself at night when you go to bed. Preach it to yourself in the middle of the day. Preach it to yourself in great success. Preach it to yourself in failure. Preach it to yourself when other people award you, reward you, notice you, pay attention to you, and preach it to yourself when people reject you. Preach the gospel to yourself. And eventually, you'll begin to understand And you'll begin to experience the joy of an identity that is built on the Lord Jesus Christ and not your worthiness. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord Jesus Christ, we encounter a passage like this and we are uh, taken aback. We are taken back to the gospel. We are reminded of things like our brokenness, things that we would rather not be reminded of. We are reminded of our need for you. We're reminded of the fact that, a, that your very life was the price for our sin. But Lord, we find joy and we find hope in that as well. Or for those that are here this morning that have never come to a place where they have trusted in what you did on the cross for them, Lord, I pray that today might be a day that they would hear this and that they would respond by believing in you. And Lord, for those that are here that have uh, believed in this, but perhaps they've you know, never really become real to them, they've never owned it, they've never uh, experienced it in a personal uh, way, Lord, I, I pray that you would remind them that they must preach the gospel to themselves over and over and over and over again. The gospel wasn't something that they just believed when they came to Christ but has nothing to do with the rest of their life. No, the gospel, we carry that through all of our lives. And Lord, would you remind us to preach this gospel to ourselves. And as a result of that, would your spirit make this very real? What they know in their head, would you make it real in their heart? Our Lord, we pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen.